no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. And he, and he concludes this, what could be more indicative of the spirit of the age? Listen, this is the world's counsel. Well, but this is the cultural air that we breathe. You know because you live in it, right? This is what he calls the spirit of the age. And by the way, this is the same, the very spirit that existed in the time of the judges when every man did what was right in his own eyes. But how should we as Christians think about this advice? Because we, we, don't have a, we don't have the luxury of refraining from drawing conclusions about this. We have to have an opinion as reasoning believers. And then we are inundated with this philosophy every single day. We're bombarded by it everywhere we turn, every time we wake up and turn on our phones. Maybe even you've been so accustomed to this ideology and inoculated to this worldly advice that as I read that quote from Anna Quindlin earlier, no red flags were going off in your mind at all. But that's a problem. So what what does the Bible say then about this you be you, be your own truth, follow your own heart kind of counsel? Well, listen to one passage, Proverbs 14 verse 12 says this, there is a way that seems right to a man, right? There's the ideology. If it feels right, well, it must be right. But listen to the, the second half of that proverb. Its way is, its end is the way of death. You see, beloved, according to this proverb, this world's advice to be true to yourself to be the captain of your own destiny, leads only to one place, that is spiritual death. The Bible pulls no punches in its evaluation of this life philosophy of the world. This way of expressive individualism, as Carl Truman once put it, is, listen, a deadly spiritual disease with a terminal spiritual diagnosis. That's what the proverb teaches us. To follow that path, your own path, will lead inevitably to spiritual death and disease. And by the way, not only that, your Christian exposed to this disease, and you're at risk of infection from this virus every single day as you go about your business in the world. It's all over the place. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 10, just a couple chapters later here, you, you, can't even, you can't even quarantine yourself from this virus unless you plan to go out of the world. And to, to make matters worse, it only takes a small amount of this virus to contaminate you. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 6 says, a little leaven, what? Leavens the whole lump. And, if that wasn't enough, the incubation period of this virus is unknown. In fact, it could take years to show up in your life, like it did for one man by the name of Demas, who was first 
counted among Paul's most faithful companions when he wrote Colossians and Philemon. But by the time Paul writes his last letter to Timothy, Demas had deserted him because he, quote, loved this present world, 2 Timothy 4, verse 10. And so here you were concerned about COVID-19. Listen, COVID pales in comparison to this spiritual pandemic that the Bible calls worldliness. Worldliness. Has it infected you? You see, the question before us this morning then is in light of all of these factors, how can we as Christians in this culture keep ourselves from catching this deadly spiritual disease? That's what we want to ask this morning. Or to put it another way, in the the language of the Apostle James, how do we keep ourselves, quote, unstained by the world, James chapter 1, verse 27? How How do we prevent ourselves from becoming conformed to this world, Romans 12, verse 2. How do we live, as maybe you've heard the the familiar saying, how do we live in the world and yet not become of the world? That, That is what we want to ask this morning, and I believe this is the very question that our passage in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 18 through 23 answers for us. How do we keep ourselves from becoming contaminated by the world? You see, writing to perhaps the worldliest church ever to be recorded in the New Testament, one that lay in the heart of the, really, the Las Vegas and Sin City of the ancient Greco-Roman world in Corinth, here in our passage, Paul describes to the Corinthians, or prescribes rather, Three effective gospel antidotes for this deadly pandemic of worldliness. That's going to be our outline. Three gospel antidotes, if you're taking notes, against the disease of worldliness. You know, some of us, not all, but some of us uh, perhaps got the COVID vaccine. And most of those, you know, were more than one round of shots. <laughs> like, we could, we could view these as three rounds, right? Three rounds of these vaccines to make us immune to this disease. And they come to us in the form of the three warnings or commands here. And for the sake of time, we won't read the whole passage right now, but as we go. So notice with me what the first antidote is. Antidote number one, we'll just call it this, gospel sobriety. Gospel sobriety. Notice what Paul says Beginning at verse 18, here's the first command. Let no man deceive himself. Let no man deceive himself. Just stop right there for a moment. You see, here Paul's first antidote is one that we could say works to cure the dangerous condition of deception. Deception, because Paul knows that this is chiefly how worldliness tends to infect us, right? That, that was the case even all the way back in Genesis 3. First, worldliness 
tricks our immune system into attacking itself, you could say. And so we might even put it this way. Worldliness is an autoimmune disease of the soul. Now, why do we say that? Because notice, Paul's warning is not against, notice the deception of false teachers out there or of Satan who disguises him as an angel of light or even of the world who comes trying to sell us its goods. His warning here is what? Against self-deception. Let no man, he writes, deceive himself. In other words, Paul says, look, if you want to guard against worldliness, keep an eye on yourself and your own soul and, listen, not the world. Isn't that good advice? It's so helpful. How depressing is it out there, right? And to think, man, I've got to guard against this and this and this and this and this. Now, Paul says, look, to keep yourself from being deceived, keep careful watch over your own heart first and not the culture. See, that is the difference in one sense between those uh, alarmist, discernment type websites out there that you've probably all been exposed to, right? Raising red flags at everything. And what Paul is speaking of here, true discernment is sober, listen, to the danger of sin within, not without. It is our own tendency, isn't it, to self-deception that makes us susceptible to the enticements of the world. That is what Paul teaches here. In fact, that's also what the Bible teaches elsewhere. I think of 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Just listen. You know it well, where John also world warns against the sin of worldliness, and he writes it this way, for all that is in the world, and notice how he describes it, The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And there, John also locates the world in our own lust and pride. That's the danger. It's from within. So be careful. Keep self-watch. If we're to effectively fight against and defend ourselves from worldliness, Paul says here we must guard against self-deception with the antidote of gospel sobriety. Proverbs 4 verse 23, remember, tells us this very thing, watch over your heart with all diligence. Paul would say to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 16, look, pay close attention to the news No, that's not what he says. (laughs) Some of you are listening. Pay close attention to yourself and to your doctrine. So let me let me just let me let me ask you this morning, dear Christian, are you more aware? Here's a test, right? Are you more aware of your own idols and your own weaknesses and your own temptations so that you can guard against them? Or Are you more alert to all that is wrong out there today? It's a fair question. 
What do you spend time being on guard against, being sober to? Which do you pay attention to more, the news or your own heart? Paul says, look, if you want to, guard, if you want to become immune to the world, then watch over your soul first. Let no man deceive himself. Paul's first antidote here is gospel sobriety. Gospel sobriety. But notice, he gives us a second. Here comes the second round. (laughs) The booster, antidote number two. We'll just call it this, gospel humility. Gospel humility. And it comes to us in the second half of verse 18, all the way to verse 20. Let's read it together. Notice. Gospel's humility. If, if, if any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. Now here in the second antidote, this one works to cure the dangerous condition, not of deception, but of pride. Because why? Paul knows that pride is really what lies beneath a symptom of self-deception. And this is Precisely what Galatians 6 verse 3 teaches us as well, where Paul will say, for if anyone thinks, listen, he is something when he's nothing, there's pride, he deceives himself. Look, pride is at the heart of self-deception, and so notice how he makes this point in this second command. Let's just skip the first line there for a moment. The command actually is, This, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. Now, how is that for a command? Literally, this is a call to become, excuse my language, a moron. But that's the word. That's where we get this term in the Greek. How's that for a command? That's a painful shot, isn't it? And if you think that is a hard pill to swallow, for us, one commentator observed that look to be foolish in the Corinthian society was tantamount to social suicide. Look, the Corinthians particularly hated to be considered foolish because they loved wisdom. They loved the world's wisdom. They wanted to be seen that way. Look, Paul's warning here, though, is against being deceived about what we think we know. And more specifically, his warning is not to value worldly wisdom over God's wisdom, not to prefer human wisdom over divine wisdom, not to prefer our own wisdom over the wisdom of God's Word. Which is why I'm calling this antidote gospel humility. Look, this is... This is a warning, Paul says, of not, not to think you know better than God. Like, we're all susceptible to that, aren't we? And, and Paul says, look, we find out here that the path to true wisdom is to renounce what we think we know according to the world's standards and to adopt God's definition of wisdom. 
to prevent self-deception, that it makes us vulnerable to worldliness, Paul says we must be willing to be scorned by the world as morons for Christ. We must become fools for Christ's sake, 1 Corinthians 4 verse 10, in order to become wise. If you want to be protected, Christian, from the world and all that it seeks to infect us with and path to death, You must take this antidote, gospel humility. You must not think you know better than God. This is the path to real wisdom. And, 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 and it's the most painful one of all. John chapter 12, 24 and 25 puts the principle this way, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life, here's the principle, loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If you want to be wise, you must become foolish. Gospel humility. But notice the condition here in verse 18. Because we might be saying, well, I think I'm actually healthy. Who is this antidote for? Surely it doesn't include me, but notice. Who is this antidote for? If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age. This antidote is for, first, listen, everyone. If any man. We're all in danger of this, right? We all are susceptible at one point or another in our pride to think, man, I, I've got it together. I really know. I know. I know what I'm doing here. <laughs> and so Paul says, look, this warning is for everyone. It's a panacea. It's a universal medicine <laughs> because we're all susceptible to this kind of pride, aren't we? But notice also this antidote is for everyone who is overly confident in their own opinion. Notice, it's, it's for anyone who thinks that he is wise. This warning is for those who we might say are wise in their own eyes. This is Isaiah 5.21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. That's the warning here. Not only that, this antidote is for everyone who, notice, arrogantly compares himself to others. The phrase shows up here, among you, among you all. You see, human wisdom, isn't this true? Always and only, we could even say, compares itself to other people horizontally. Better than that guy, smarter than that guy. But lastly, notice this antidote is for everyone whose wisdom is merely worldly wisdom. That's what Paul is referring to here by this phrase, in this age. Right? This is worldly wisdom. This is the wisdom of those who have confined their expertise to the things of this life and this existence. And by the way, if you glance back to chapter 2... Paul has already told us there the wisdom of this age is, is, is temporal and not eternal. It's uh, verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6. It's passing away. 
And not only is the wisdom of this age temporal and not eternal, it's, it's, it also seriously misjudges spiritual truth and realities. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. Because it's those rulers of this age who had this wisdom that actually crucified the Lord of glory. The height of folly. They missed it by that much. So, so let me ask you this morning, does this, wisdom, does this describe you this morning? Do you, do you think of yourself as wise in this age in comparison to other people? Have you ever thought that? If so, Paul is calling you, listen, in this, in this, in this second antidote, to become a fool so that you may become truly wise. You must Humble yourself before God and seek His wisdom first. Listen, this is, as, as, as even Wes prayed earlier, Romans one twenty two, to profess to be wise in this age is to become a fool before God. Take it to the bank. That's the principle that Paul puts down here. But why does it work this way? Have you ever thought that? Why, look, why, why is that the case? Is this the only way to get better? Is this the only way to guard myself from this disease? Is there a different remedy? Is there an alternative medicine? And the answer is no. God's wisdom is the only thing that works. Notice the reason that Paul gives for this antidote here in verse 19. In other words, we, to carry the analogy even further, this is, we could even say, the active ingredient in this medicine. This is why the remedy works. Why? Because the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. Nothing else is effective. Why must we renounce our own wisdom and become moronic to be truly wise? Because in God's, listen, here's how Paul puts it, in God's presence, in His sight, that's the, that's the meaning behind this prepositional phrase, before God. In His presence, the wisdom of the world is shown for what it truly is, foolishness, in comparison to God Almighty. It's the same reason when Paul gave back in chapter 1, verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God's wisdom is better. Man's wisdom pales in comparison to the wisdom of God. In the presence of our all-wise Creator, human wisdom all the expertise that the world has to offer is shown for to be utter foolishness in comparison. Look, it is like holding a candle to the sun. It's that ridiculous, right? I mean, next time, try, go, go outside in broad daylight, clear skies, middle of the day, and, hold, and walk around downtown with, with, with a candle. And when, when people ask you, what are you doing? I, I need this to see where I'm going. It's that foolish. We understand this picture, don't we? You know, speaking of graduating classes, it was in the eighth grade. You know, out of my small graduating class of about 
no, no more, literally, uh, no more than probably 50 students. I was named most athletic. Can you believe that? <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> But but then but then I went to high school and I joined and I joined the football team at a public high school in South Florida. And it was then that I realized just how foolish my aspirations to play in the NFL really were, right? That it's a trite illustration, but look, in the same way, Paul's saying, look, human wisdom pales in comparison to the wisdom of God. All our righteous deeds are filthy rags in His presence, Isaiah 64, 6. Look, in the same way, in comparison to the surpassing value of knowing Christ, what did Paul say in Philippians 3, right? All the things which He once thought to be gain, those things He counted as loss, indeed even rubbish and trash and excrement in the light of God's glorious presence, that what, that's what they look like in the shadow of the Almighty. And the same truth is found here concerning wisdom. How inferior, how foolish does our human and worldly wisdom become in the presence of a holy, omniscient God? And so Paul, let's apply that here. Look, Paul's warning is, then why would we trade, why would we trade one for the other? How deceived must we be to exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man? We can notice Paul doesn't just stop at stating this principle and this reason. He goes on in the rest of verse 19 and 20 to actually prove that this statement is true by, look, by none other than quoting God's wisdom. He quotes two passages of Scripture. How appropriate. He doesn't appeal to human reason. He doesn't appeal to scientific experiments. He says, you want to know why? I know this is true. Thus saith the Lord. Notice, for it is written. First, he references Job 5 verse 13, which says, he that is God is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. Just hang on there for a minute. The language here in this first quote of Scripture, this first proof that God's wisdom is far better than the world's wisdom is that of hunting and fishing. That's the language here. And it's, in other words, let me put it in terms maybe you and I would understand. Just as easy it is for us to trick an animal into being caught by our traps... Pretty easy. This is what God does to those who think they're wise in this world. You know, I also used to go bass fishing quite a bit as a kid in my neighborhood. And once, probably more than once, I can remember catching the same fish twice. That ever happened to you? Have you ever done that? And you know it's the same fish because they've got that the scar and they're I mean, they're still bleeding, right? And so, the same lure, back-to-back, same place. Talk about foolish, right? The folly of, of a fish. This literally just happened to you. And that is how far superior God's wisdom is to man's. 
He catches the wise in their own devices in a plot twist of irony. Haman is hung in his own gallows. You know the story, right? Satan is defeated by the cross. But it's what we, in God's providence, read earlier, Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11. The Lord nullifies the counsels of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. In contrast, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. But the wisdom of the world is utter foolishness in God's sight. Proof number one, Job 5.13. And again, though, notice, Paul brings evidence number two from another passage, second biblical proof of this, verse 20. But again, the Lord knows the, the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. This time, uh, Paul quotes from Psalm 94, Psalm 94, verse 11, and here the point he's making is the same. God's wisdom is better than our wisdom. The proof of this here is simply this. There's nothing that the world knows that God doesn't already know. Right? I think of my kids, sometimes they come up to me and they, it's like, man, something has dawned on them. They've got this great insight. And they come to me and they're so excited, they say it to me, and it's like, yeah, I already know that, <laughs> but thank you. I mean, that, that's kind of what Paul is saying here by quoting this verse, and again, in God's providence, look back, Psalm 33, or just listen, here's why he already knows what we know, because he that is God fashioned the hearts of them all, and he who understands, he understands all of our works. He made us. He taught us. Think about this for a moment. Every scientific breakthrough, every mathematical advance, every deep space discovery, every technological innovation, every sophisticated philosophical theory that took mankind centuries to arrive at, the psalmist says, God already knows. The Lord knows. And listen, not only does God already know what we think we know, notice how the psalmist actually puts it here. He, he, even, knows, he even knows how we think we know. The, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise. He doesn't just know the content of our thoughts. He knows how we think. And what does he think of our thinking. <laughs> well, the psalmist tells us they are a mere breath. That's the language here in the Hebrew of Psalm 94, verse 11. That is the word useless. It's vanity of vanities. It's that is what man's thoughts, man's best thoughts are like compared to God's mind. So think about this, if you, another illustration, put the best of all man's ideas together on a scale over here, and God's infinite wisdom over here, th- this is how much they would weigh in comparison to God's wisdom. Ready? That's it. That's the idea. 
And so no wonder Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, you know the, the passage well. No wonder God would tell us then, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as, here's the comparison, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Your Christian, the wisdom of the world is is foolishness in comparison before God Almighty. And so Paul says, look, to to be truly wise in, in God's eyes and not in our own eyes, Paul says we must abandon human reason altogether. We must repent of our intellectual pride and swallow the pill of gospel humility. That's a second antidote here. Now, be, before we move on to this last one, let me, let me just give you some diagnostic questions for discerning then whether or not you're valuing man's wisdom over God's, right? Some of you in the medical field know what these kinds of questions are used. Like you go to, you go to a doctor and they ask you a series of questions to, to figure out what is wrong with you. And so that, that is what I want to give you here. How do you know? How can I know if I'm valuing man's wisdom more than God's wisdom? A few questions here. Do you find yourself arguing with God or questioning what the Bible clearly teaches? That's one way. Second question, do you, do you, do you find yourself more compelled by philosophical uh, arguments, scientific arguments, logical arguments than biblical arguments? Or do you, do you lean on your own understanding when evaluating truth? You, you know, you hear a, a claim out there and you say, Here, here's how you figure out if it's, if it's true. Ah, sounds, sounds right to me. Or do you measure every truth claim against Scripture first? Another question, are you, are you tempted to reinterpret unpopular truths in the Bible through the lens of what is more culturally acceptable and politically correct? It's happening a lot today, isn't it? Two more, are you, are you discontent with the Bible's answer for things? Lastly, are you, are you trying to do God's work with the world's tools and tactics? I mean, these are all ways for us to diagnose our own hearts. Are you valuing the world's wisdom over God's wisdom? Paul says, man, how foolish that would be. Do not be deceived. Well, there's a, there's a, a final antidote here. Round number three that we'll just call it this gospel identity, gospel identity. So gospel sobriety, gospel humility, finally gospel identity. The rest of these verses, notice, read them with me. So then, let no one boast in men. Why? For all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you, and 
You belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. What does Paul mean here? Look, Paul's final warning here is one that concerns our identity, who we are. In other words, his concern here is that we find our identity in Christ and not in anything less like other people or the world, anything in the world for that matter. And listen, this is so needed today, isn't it? This, this, this is such a relevant issue today because it would be an understatement to say that the world is obsessed with how we identify. And we could go here and say, look, so is Paul and so is God. But notice how he makes his point. The last command here is found in verse 21. So then, let no one boast or glory in, or find their significance in men. What is Paul referring to here in this phrase, boasting or glorying in men? You see, Paul ultimately is warning against glorying in what people think of us, not what God thinks of us. Like finding our identity by attaching ourselves to people we think are significant, right? That is what That's what Paul is concerned about here for the Corinthians. You see, listen to this. This this is where all of, this is where where the path of worldliness and pride leads. This is the pathology of worldliness. This is where the infection eventually ends. A high view of man's wisdom will inevitably lead, listen, to the worship of man. That's Paul's logic here. Here Paul makes the connection unmistakable with the words, so that, right? This is the inevitable result and the symptom of worldly pride. We will inevitably be tempted to find our worth in people rather than in Christ if we elevate human wisdom over God's wisdom. That's gospel logic. We'll be tempted to find significance in our relationships with certain people or groups or things or activities, our work, because they give us a sense of security and identity and belonging. I mean, you you know what this is like. Search your own heart in this. This is a temptation for us, isn't it? To find our identity in something other than God and in the gospel and in Jesus. It's seen in the insecure teenager who feels better about himself when he finds belonging in a group of his peers who are of the same style or the same subculture or obsessed with the same video game. That is also seen in parents who live vicariously through the athletic achievements of their children. This is boasting in men. And by the way, this is the same thing that we do when, we, uh, when we're tempted to name drop in conversations, right? Ever done that? Because it makes us feel significant in the eyes of others based on who we've now associated or identified ourselves with. It's, it's who we know. Man, I know that guy. Wow, you must be really important. 
And Paul says, look, these are all signs and symptoms of worldliness. And what are we, what are we doing in those moments? We are seeking to boost our own social stock by identifying ourselves with people we think are important or influential or respectable. And listen, that is exactly what the Corinthians were doing. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. Look, those things, look, are those men bad? Were Paul, Cephas, Apollos intentionally seeking to lead the Corinthians astray into some cult following of themselves? No. So look, we can do this even with good things. And so Paul has to write here. Let me me give you an antidote to worldliness. Stop boasting in men. Stop finding your identity in those things, in lesser things. Stop finding your significance, Christian, in mere mortal men. That is worldliness to its core. But again, we ask why, and it's so helpful. Paul just keeps giving us reasons, right? I love that. Notice the, here, the rest of the passage, the, the active ingredient here is for this antidote It's found in the the rest of verse 21 down to the end of the paragraph. We should not boast in men because, notice, two, two, two reasons actually, because of what we have already in Christ and who we belong to. Notice, for, he says, because, here come the reasons, all things belong to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things, Christian, all things belong to you. That's reason number one. And you, reason number two, belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. I love this. Here in answering the question why we shouldn't boast in men, why we shouldn't seek significance in any lesser thing, Paul anchors the Corinthians in their gospel identity, what they have in Christ and who they are in Christ. Isn't that sweet? Christian, remember that. Remember that this morning. Notice first he reminds us of all that we have. The repetition of the phrase, I mean, in short, it's this, everything, (laughs) everything, and you say, well, man, has Paul become prosperity gospel here? Right? You're so rich. Here, here's everything. No, not necessarily. The question is, in what sense do we as Christians have everything? And I would suggest to you the answer is found then in, in the list here. Notice, Paul says, Paul, notice what belongs to them. He, he names Paul and Apollos and Cephas which in the context, back up to verse 5, I would just argue this. He he identifies himself and Apollos and Cephas as this, chapter 3, verse 5, as simply servants through whom they believed. And so that's helpful because in the same way, I think Paul's point here is that all these other things, the world, life, death, things present, things to come, are also servants 
that are being used by God to accomplish His purposes in the Corinthian believers. You following me? That's what I think he means here. Look, he's saying all things belong to you in that sense, that God is using all things to serve your good and His glory. And if that's beginning to sound familiar, it should, because this is the same truth that is taught essentially in Romans chapter 8. Two Sundays in a row that that passage is referred to, right? Verse 28, all things belong to them here in the same sense, listen, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. All things belong to you. Believer, Christian, in this way, because in the gospel, all things have now been made by God to serve His purposes for His beloved children. That's you. What a privilege. What security. So now apply it. Why then would you chase the applause of men? Why would you settle for, why would you long for then what the, what the world has to, to offer you? In fact, just listen to the language, Romans 8.32. He, Christian, who did not spare his own son, but delivered Christ over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Beloved, if you're in Christ, you have it all. You have it all. But notice, lastly, how all these privileges have come to you, into your possession. Very quickly, verse 23, Paul reminds us not only of what we have, but who has us. And you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. Listen, what, what, what glorious truth. You found comfort in this, Christian? This is so encouraging, isn't it? This is who you are. This is who you belong to. We have all things by our sweet union and communion with Jesus. This is our gospel identity. Let it guard you from temptation to worldliness. It is enough. It should be for you. Listen, as the song declares, that I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. So why would you turn anywhere else for your significance? Christian, you you belong to God. You, You belong to Him. And listen, nothing can separate you from that relationship. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor powers, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So don't succumb to the temptation. Don't boast in men. Don't find your significance anywhere else. Rather, Jeremiah 9, verse 24, you know it well, let him who boasts then boast of this, that he understands and knows me. 
So let me ask you this morning, do, do, you, do you find your identity in human associations? Or do you find the, your identity in your union with Christ? Where is your security? Where is your significance? Is it in a subgroup, subculture, club, gang, your work, your family? Some of those are good things, but they pale in comparison to what you have in Christ. Christian, you belong to God. Do you want to make sure that you are immune then to, to the, this pandemic of worldliness? Paul says here, fortify yourselves with these three antidotes. Put on gospel sobriety, gospel humility, and gospel identity. So, you're curious, what was DeYoung's counter-cultural advice to those graduating seniors of Geneva College? This is funny. He says, do not follow your dreams. Do not march to the beat of your own drummer, and whatever you do, do not be true to yourself. Paul puts it this way in our passage, let no man deceive himself. He must become foolish that he may become wise. Let no one boast in men. Twin City Bible Church, may we guard ourselves from self-deception. May we value God's wisdom and His Word more than our own opinions. And may you, Christian, find your identity in Christ and in Him alone. Amen? That'll keep you from worldliness. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this text. It's so strengthening for us. Lord, we pray that You might keep us unstained from the world, for we cannot keep ourselves. And Father, if there are any here listening to this who realize that they have have plunged headlong into the world, that they are infected without cure, Father, may You open their eyes to the only cure, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.